Good morning. Uh, my name is David Richter, and I am the pastor here at City Church, and it's so good to be with you this morning. Um, I'm going to go ahead and apologize to you up front. Um, I found out about 30 minutes ago that my wife just was in a car wreck, um, and she is doing fine, uh, but our car is totaled, and so uh, her brother, Chris, who many of you know, has gone out to get her, uh, so you can pray for her in that. Um, and, uh, but she, she is fine. I've talked to her a couple times. Uh, she's doing very well. The police are there, so everything I think is uh, doing well. Um, you know, uh, you, you often come to, to worship thinking that uh, you're doing it by your own strength, whether you want to admit that or not. It's very Christian-y to, to think that uh, you're not and say that, but it takes something an event like this uh, to drive home the reality of how out of control we are in life. Uh, I don't say that as a platitude or, or to make you guys uh, connect with me. Uh, it's just a reality. Um, and as we come to God's word, uh, we need to be reminded of how needy we are. And uh, I'm reminded of that this morning. Um, and so I'd ask that you pray for me as I pray for you. Uh, and let's enter into God's word uh, and see what he has to teach us this morning. Father, uh, we love you. We thank you. What a gift it is to be able to come into your presence, even in the midst of a broken world, um, even in the midst of suffering and sorrow, even in the midst of uh, uh, the reality of our complete lack of control. Um, and Lord, we just pray that you would be with us, be with me, uh, that you would pour your spirit out upon us like you promised that you will, uh, and that you would open our hearts and minds and allow us, Lord, uh, to see wonderful things in your word and to be transformed by your grace. Uh, we are utterly dependent on you for this, Lord. We can't do it ourselves. We don't come on our own strength. Uh, we need you, Lord, and we pray that you would move this morning. In Jesus' most holy name, amen. All right, here we go. Uh, so uh, for those of you uh, who have been around our church and have been attending for a little while or maybe even a short amount of time, uh, you'll probably know that we have been working our way through a series in the book of Philippians this summer, and a lot of that has been uh, very pointed with the idea of joy. Philippians is the book of joy, and it is the, the book uh, that actually drives us deeper into the reality of how we can have real joy in this world. Where does that come from? Uh, where is it rooted? How we actually can be connected to that? Um, and I thought it was a good series for us to do in the midst of uh, starting or trying to start or the kind of the, uh, the ebb and flow of coming out of COVID. Uh, I need joy. I think all of you do as well. Our culture uh, seems to be sucked dry of joy in many ways. Uh, anytime you look, turn on the TV or anything else, it seems like uh, we're just at each other's throats. And uh, we need joy. We need to be able to remember where these things come from. Uh, and we finished that up a couple of weeks ago. I've been on vacation for the last couple of weeks. Uh, and we are actually going to be starting a new series, a uh, four-week series in the book of 1 John. And then after that, we're going to start a book uh, series in the book of Daniel that's going to take us through the fall uh, up until Advent time uh, to give you a little context for, for where we're at and where we're going. And uh, this series is meant to be a little bit of a benediction for the summer. Um, uh, in the month of August, where it's kind of a transitional time, uh, it's a good book to kind of lean into uh, to remember some fundamental things about what it means to be a Christian in this world and how we live our lives. Uh, the author of this book is the Apostle John. He is the same uh, person who wrote the Gospel of John, 
Um, and uh, he's an interesting character. I've seen uh, a number of memes that have been going around this past week uh, that, that talk about the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, and how they're just kind of like the boring guy, you know? And then you have John, who's like, it's a picture of this like flamboyant kind of crazy person. Uh, and all these have the, the kind of a different theme on that skill. And the reason for that is that John is an interesting character. He doesn't write like the other apostles do. Uh, he is not a linear writer. Uh, he's incredibly poetic in how he communicates. Uh, and he uses a kind of a well-known uh, theological technique called uh, amplification. And, and what this is really is it's kind of a cyclical kind of approach to things where he kind of speaks in kind of a funnel shape. And he's kind of constantly going around and he comes back to different themes. So it's not a logical progression oftentimes, um, but it is a beautiful, artistic, uh, poetic uh, expression and approach to the scriptures. And this represents the reality that our God knows that we have different personalities, we have different ways of thinking, uh, different cultures approach things in different ways, and we're not uh, just impacted by facts and you know, just kind of linear stories, right? We're also impacted by beauty and art and poetry. And, Paul, and uh, the Apostle John really leans into that in such a way uh, that it awakens our hearts in many ways. It brings us back to life. And he says in the intro of this book, in verses one through four, uh, that the reason that he is writing this particular letter is so that our joy might be made complete. Now, who here would like to have their joy made complete, right? Uh, I sure would. Uh, and, uh, and I'm thankful that he wrote this letter because I think it's a good uh, kind of capstone or benediction to the book of Philippians that we've been working through about joy. Um, but hopefully it'll help us as a community, as a people, as a church, uh, to realize what it means to have our joy complete in Christ um, and in him. And uh, before we dive into that, uh, I want to just take a moment and pray and ask the Lord uh, to remember that as well. So let's do that. I know I prayed a minute ago, but let's pray again and ask him to remember that great truth. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask you that you would complete our joy this morning, that you would help us, that you would show us your grace, um, that you would speak through this beautiful poetic book um, to enliven us and bring us back, uh, to awaken us if we're sleepy, uh, to revive us um, if we're asleep, uh, to bring us back to life uh, in you. And Lord, we trust in you that you will do this. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So you get the double prayer this morning. Um, so the question, if, if this is a book that's written to complete our joy, the question is how? How can our joy be completed um, and uh, the answer that uh, John gives us in this book uh, is very straightforward in this passage, but it's one that is kind of a little confusing to wrap your head around. He says that the way that our joy is complete is through the idea of fellowship with God. Um, and what we need to understand here is that John says that he and the other apostles had actually seen with their eyes, heard with their ears, and touched with their hands God himself the very source of our life and light in this world. Moreover, they had been given the incredible gift of fellowship or renewed fellowship with God himself. And fellowship um, is something that's an interesting thing to kind of think about. We throw around different terms oftentimes and we don't really understand what their original meaning is. And fellowship is not something where you're just kind of hanging out with people, uh, you talk about fellowship meals and that kind of stuff. Uh, it is a word that goes much deeper than that, not just knowing about somebody or just kind of hanging out with somebody, but it's a deep, intimate, personal relationship with someone. 
that drives down to the very core of our hearts and souls. Um, this is the thing we are told here that every human heart is longing for, whether you know that you're longing for that or not. It's the thing that every human soul is searching for in this world, whether you know that's what you're searching for or not. It is the thing that we desperately long for in this world. It's the thing that we have been searching for. You know, there's a great cliche in our culture. You'll see it on like talk shows, you'll hear it in movies, that there is a God-shaped hole, right, in our lives, in our souls. And oftentimes when you hear that kind of thing, my friends, especially who are non-Christians, just kind of roll their eyes at it. They think it's ridiculous to kind of think about that. Um, and the reason for that oftentimes is that we have kind of, uh, we have wielded it in such a way that it's pretty cheesy. But the reality is, is that the scriptures say that this is actually true. There is a God-shaped hole in our lives that we're longing to fill and trying to fill with other things other than him. Augustine of Hippo uh, who's a famous theologian in history and church father, said this, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in thee. And the question that comes out of this is how, if this is true, do we actually find rest in God? How do we find fellowship with him? And the answer we have is here in verse 5, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. All right, you got that? Let's pray and close, and then we'll go home, all right? Uh, if you're anything like me, that's a little bit of a confusing response to the question of how we can have fellowship with God, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Um, uh, you need to remember in, in reading John that he is not a linear uh, thinker. He's not a linear writer. He's not approaching this from kind of a, uh, a logical structure. He is being incredibly poetic, and he's playing with themes here to help us understand a deeper reality about what our relationship with God is supposed to be like. Um, and as a result, he is using the metaphor of light and darkness in order to show us how we can have restored relationship with God. And this is a powerful metaphor. Uh, in fact, uh, Michael Osborne, who is a professor at the University of Florida, talks about the light-dark metaphor as being an archetypal metaphor. Uh, it is a metaphor, he says, that has had universal appeal and resonance across all cultures, all social statuses, racial, uh, generational boundaries throughout all human history, and has been codified in our rhetoric, in our art, in our culture from the very beginning. Every culture has had kind of this idea and this theme as this being a major idea about what it means to live in this world. This light and dark theme resonates across all cultures and all people groups in our world throughout all history. It's very powerful in that way. And it's only when we take the time to try to understand this metaphor uh, that we can never really understand what Paul, uh, that what uh, that John is talking, I keep saying Paul because we've been in Philippians, I'm sorry, that John is talking about when it means that we can have fellowship with God. And this is important to understand that when the Bible employs this metaphor of light and darkness, um, it is really referring to three different things oftentimes throughout the scriptures. And that is, uh, it's referring to truth when it's talking about light, it's referring to righteousness when it's talking about light, and it's talking to li about life when it's talking about light in this way. And so I want to walk through these uh, and unpack them in that order. And hopefully as we move along, 
it will actually illuminate, uh, pun intended, right, more and more of what Paul, what, he, what John is talking about here. Um, and so the first one I want to look at is, according to the Bible, light is a metaphor for truth. It's a metaphor for knowledge and understanding in this world. And the same is true with how we think about things in our culture in general, right? Um, light represents knowledge and right understanding of reality. Uh, if you think about the Enlightenment, it was a great time of, of understanding coming to, the, to humanity. Uh, if you have an idea of something or you are studying something and you understand it, what do we say? We say that a light bulb went off in our head, right? Um, it is something that kind of weaves its way through our understanding of this reality. Conversely, darkness represents a lack of knowledge and confusion and an ignorance of reality. Uh, uh, when we don't know something or we don't understand something, we, we talk about having a dark mind or a dark understanding of something. The dark ages were a time where we didn't understand, right? There was a lack of knowledge that was represented. And in this and through this comes a big question for us this morning. And it's a big philosophical question that we're actually not going to have the time to fully unpack. I'm happy to sit down and have uh, a drink with you one day, coffee or beer, and, and, and talk about this if you would like. But the question is, what is truth, and how do we find it in this world? C.S. Lewis, uh, the famous theologian and writer and academic, said this, Throughout most of human history, truth has been primarily understood as an external, transcendent, fixed reality. An external, transcendent, fixed reality. Truth is something that's out there. It exists. And if we want to know what is true, we need to find a source of that truth so that we can be enlightened by it and then mold our lives to that reality. Does that make sense? I know that's a little philosophical. Uh, uh, here's an illustration that might help you with that. Universities were founded upon this idea. Uh, the very word university comes from the word universal or universe, and it is a word that means the search for a universal truth by which that we can mold our lives to. And so it's humanity coming together, searching for truth so that we can have understanding and knowledge in this world, that it's out there, that we can search for it. The basis of science is based on this, right, that there are true things in the world, and we can go out there and explore those and discover those things and then mold our lives by that reality. But on the other hand, our culture recently, in the last 100 years or so, has really more and more come along a very different idea of this. And I've spoken about this in the past, but it's the idea of expressive individualism. And that is the idea that truth is not something that's external and transcendent and out there. Truth is actually exists within us. And therefore, if you want to find truth in this world, what you need to do is not explore the world, but explore yourself to unpack what you believe is true to understand what you understand to be true, and then to learn how to express that out into the world. And as a result, uh, if you want to know these things, you have to engage in this process of self-exploration. That's what you hear about all the time in our culture, right? Uh, to be able to find out what's true. And this sounds really great at first, um, because it sounds like you're, you're kind of working on yourself, you're bettering yourself, uh, you're trying to figure out what your desires are and kind of how to live out your life in this world. It's self-empowerment in that way. But there's a problem that comes along with this, and that problem is rooted in the reality that what if your truth ends up being different than my truth that you discover? If this is true, then there's no way ultimately to adjudicate our differences with each other. Sound familiar? Exactly where we are as a culture. We don't have any basis by which to adjudicate 
differences in what we believe truth is. And as a result, all we do is end up trying to make power plays against each other in order to get our way. Um, as an illustration of this, growing up, and I'm not making a political statement in this, so please, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to couch that. Please don't come up to me afterwards and, and say I'm, I'm, I'm not taking a side. I'm an independent. There you go. Um, but growing up is an interesting phenomenon, right? So, you know, this phenomenon, especially when I was in high school, began to take hold of our culture in which we started talking. Everybody started talking about the idea that my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. And it sounded like this great kind of uh, loving, wonderful thing in which we're just kind of all getting along with each other and everything is going great. And that was wonderful until Trump came along, right? And then all of my progressive friends became really, really, really fascinated with truth all of a sudden. And it almost swapped in how we view these things. And again, I'm not making a political statement about this, but it's fascinating to think about how we think about this idea of truth in our culture, how we think about how we get our way, and when it's important to have truth and not have truth. And it drives at our desires. It drives at the kind of the way that we think about reality in this world. The very fabric, because we have become so confused about this reality, of our relational dynamic, our relational foundation in this world is absolutely unraveling. We cannot have fellowship with each other anymore. We can't have fellowship with each other anymore without some basis, some shared basis of understanding about what's true in the world. And if this is true, which I would argue it is, and the Bible argues it is, the question is what do we do? We desperately need truth, but we're lost in kind of a world of darkness where we don't really understand and have a foundation by which to find that anymore and to guide us in what we're doing. Well, the biblical answer to this is that we live in a world that is broken and lost and dark. But out of an incredible act of grace by God who created us, He's actually broken into the midst of our darkness, and he's revealed himself to us through a wonderful act of enlightenment. In John, he says this in the book of John, God is light, he is truth. He is the very source of all knowledge and all understanding and all sense of understanding reality in this world. And as a result, we don't have to find truth on our own in order to discover it or to discover it within ourselves, we need to go to God because God himself has come and revealed this truth to us. He's revealed to us the great story of humanity, who we are, where we've come from, who created us, what went wrong in this world, why the world is broken. It's not just a rosy book if you read throughout the scriptures. It's very honest about the reality of the brokenness of our world. It's also very honest about what God is doing about that and the reality of how that works out in our lives and what we need in this world to figure out what reality is, to figure out what hope is and truth is. And the question is, how do we get this? Well, God reveals himself in the scriptures in two very specific ways. The first is general revelation. Uh, he does it through nature and the world around us. Uh, this works its way out uh, in two, uh, as well in two very specific ways, in kind of uh, natural law, uh, and, and I'm not trying to get too philosophical with this, but, you know, uh, there, are, there are kind of realities in this world that you just can't get around. 
It does not matter if you look inside of yourself and you believe with your whole soul and being that you can fly. If you go up on top of a building and you jump off, it's not going to work out well for you. There are natural realities and natural truths in this world uh, that will smack you in the face if you don't take them really seriously. And one of the things that we've done in our culture that's really interesting is we've divorced the idea of spiritual truth, spiritual reality, from the idea of physical truth and reality in such a way that we think that we have to obey natural laws, but we don't think we have to obey spiritual laws anymore. And that's led us to the place that we are. So that's one point. It's important to kind of get that understanding in your head. But it's also, we are told, God has revealed himself in a, in a way that he has shown us who he is. And in Romans 1, it says that, that through his creation, through the world that he has created, we can have a knowledge of him. We know that he's created. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail about this because we don't have time, but if you're interested in this, I'd love to talk to you about it because there are so many scientists in the world who have come to an understanding of theism, not necessarily Christianity, but the reality of as they study the world around them, you cannot deny the complexity of the world, the beauty of the world, the wonder of the world, that it cannot just be an accident. Something had to happen. Something had to create it and start it. You know, good, quick illustration. This is not a gotcha statement, but... An illustration of this is uh, a lot of my friends uh, who are uh, atheist scientists would talk about the idea of the Big Bang. Everything came from the Big Bang. Well, that's really interesting, and it actually may be true. There's a lot of evidence for that. But where did the Big Bang come from, right? And if you go beyond that, you don't have an answer for it. You have to be able to say where these things come from. And you understand that more and more in the complexity and the beauty of things. There has to be a creator a being to be able to do this. And what we're told is through general revelation, we can actually come to know that truth. And so you have that on one end, and then there's special revelation on the other. God not only has revealed himself generally through his creation, but he's actually spoken into our word, world and given us his word. That very specifically tells us who we are, how we were created, what this world is for, what our purpose and meaning is in this world, and who he is, and what he's doing to fix our world. It's our great story, and it's your story as well, whether you know it or not. Your story is actually a part of this great story of the scriptures. And we're told that this actually enlightens us to all the things that we're longing to find out in this world. And it draws us to a knowledge of God. In John 1, we're told this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was nothing not anything made that was made. In him was life and the light of men. And you see these themes kind of being strung through in this way. And Jesus in this makes a radical claim in the Gospels. In John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. You actually can know reality. You can know truth. And what we need to understand in this is that Jesus here is claiming something really radical as well. He's claiming to be God himself the very source of all light and life in this world and all of our existence. And in this, the Bible compares Jesus to the sun, the source of light. And by the light of the sun, we can see everything. And by the light of God's sun, right, we can actually know what is true in this world. C.S. Lewis has a great little quote that you often see on T-shirts and on banners and on posters and different things. And this is what he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I can see it, but because by it I can see everything else. 
It opens our eyes to be able to see the world the way it really is and to actually live in the light of that truth. And this is very important because just as truth is necessary for us to have fellowship for one another, it also is necessary, we're told in the scriptures, to have fellowship with God. That's in order to have fellowship with God, John says here in this chapter that we must first recognize and accept that God is the source of all truth. And that's a hard thing to do. I admit that. But that's exactly what it says. And it calls us to that reality. Here in verse 6, it says that if we say that we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we refuse to accept his truth, then we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light of his truth, we have fellowship not only with him, but also with one another. John 8 says this, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It will set you free. This is not a binding thing. Oftentimes when we think about God's word, we think about it as this insufferable rule book, right? But if you read the scriptures, what you actually find is that it is a glorious story. And as you lean into the reality of that story, you understand what's true and what is real. It actually sets you free to live the way that you're supposed to and find the hope and meaning in this world that you were made for. And that is a glorious and beautiful thing. So that's the first point I want us to think about this morning. But the second one flows out of that, and it is this. According to the Bible, light is not only a metaphor for truth, but it's also a metaphor for morality and goodness and justice in this world. Uh, and the same, again, in our culture is true. Light, when something is good and just, we say that it is full of light, right? Um, and when uh, something is full of evil and injustice, uh, it's also full of, we say it's full of darkness. Um, and what we need to understand in this is the Bible calls this a kind of a, a very interesting concept, and that's the concept of righteousness. Um, it uses this word to kind of expound this idea of justice and goodness in this world. Now, the big question is, uh, what is this righteousness that the scriptures are talking about? Um, where does morality and goodness and justice come from? And again, uh, this is a huge topic. I'm happy to talk about it more. We're not going to be able to unpack it all. Um, but it leads us to a question that's really important for this morning. And that, that is, does righteousness come from an external, transcendent source? Or does it come from us? Does it come from inside of us? This is another claim that our culture makes. And this is really important to, to understand because just like the concept of truth, without some shared basis for righteousness, we are all lost in the dark in this world. Who is to say that my concept of morality and goodness and justice is better than your concept of morality and justice and truth? If you have something I want and my concept of righteousness is a concept of power and the meeting of my own desires, then what is going to keep me from killing you and taking from you what I want? Now, you might immediately say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, violence in that way and murder in that way is wrong. It's unjust. It's immoral. But what right do you have to make that claim? On what basis do you make that claim? It's really important. A lot of the confusion that we have about justice in this world is because we don't have a basis for understanding what justice is or how we actually get to a root of being able to uh, have a shared understanding of it in this world. And without that, you cannot have real justice. A great illustration about this uh, is, uh, again, I'm not making a political statement, 
but it's how we're talking about the idea of abortion right now. What's more righteous, the rights and the good of the mother or the rights and the good of the child? This is a huge problem. Without a shared basis for righteousness, we cannot determine a shared understanding of what is just and what is good. And therefore, we end up being bogged down in the horrible fights that we're in right now. And without a shared understanding of justice and goodness in this way, we cannot have fellowship with one another, we're told. And that's exactly what we see happening. We have no more fellowship in our culture because we have no more shared understanding of truth and righteousness. And it's driving us apart. It's driving us to fight with each other and to yell at each other and to destroy everything around us. According to the Bible, the answer to this is that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He is righteousness. He is the source and the basis of all goodness and justice and mercy. Those are actually character traits of his. They're not just kind of concepts that he invented. They're actually rooted in his very character. If you want to know what justice is, he is just. And his decisions and his actions are the basis for which we understand justice in this world. Same is true with goodness and all the other things that we deal with in this way. God has not only broken into our darkness and revealed his truth to us in this way, he's revealed to us what is right and what is true. He's also given us his law in this way so that we can know what these righteous and just things are. Everything from what is evil. Why is murder evil, right? Because he says that it's evil. And he says that it's wrong to strike at the image of God. And therefore, we have a basis for understanding justice in that way. And again, that's true for all kinds of other things, hatred, abuse, kindness. We talk about how my wife loves Harry Styles, right? Uh, and, you know, his big theme is, you know, and we just need to be kind to one another, right? Well, why? Why should we be kind to one another? Well, God gives us a very, very specific reason for that. Because of his unbelievable kindness to us, we are called to be kind to one another. And that is the basis for understanding righteousness in that way. But he also, that's not all. He also has given us his son, Jesus, to model true righteousness to us as he lived a perfect life in this world of God's justice and righteousness. Matthew 12 says this, Behold my servant who I have chosen, my beloved in whom I am well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Right? He's proclaiming what is just to the world. But the rub here is that Light not only reveals, it also exposes when it comes in our way. I used this illustration, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago, but if you go to a department store, um, as I don't hardly ever do anymore, but if you walk through the section with uh, kind of perfumes and makeup and that kind of stuff, they always have those little mirrors that have the lights around them. And you need to be a very, very brave person to look into that mirror because it's going to show you exactly what you look like. And you're going to be shocked because we all have this kind of like, false reality about what our faces really look like. But if you look in one of those things, man, right? Well, the truth is, is the gospel does the same thing. It reveals, it exposes and magnifies our blemishes and imperfections. And we are much worse than we could ever imagine. Much worse than we could ever imagine. And in the same way, we need to understand what he's talking about here. And it's a huge problem. Because just as righteousness is necessary for us to have fellowship with one another, it's also necessary for us to have fellowship with God, we are told. 2 Corinthians 6 says, What fellowship can light have with darkness? 
And the answer is none. It cannot have. The light is too harsh and too painful for us to experience. The exposing of that makes us want to run away. It makes us want to reject God's truth and his righteousness in this world. So we run from it. We try to get away from it at all costs. We deny our sin. We try to cover up. We try to create these false narratives of reality to make ourselves look better than we actually are. And we drive ourselves deeper and deeper into the darkness of our world. John 3, 19 says, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. We know how broken we are, really. But when it's exposed, when it's shown to us in the light of God's truth, we react harshly against that. And we, all we want to do is run away from it. John 8 says this, in fear and sin, we tried to overcome the light and sniff it out by killing it. How did we do that? When the true light came into the world, when Jesus entered in, what did we do? Did we say, oh, this is wonderful, this is true, this is glorious to see what I'm really like in this world so that I can come and repent and actually come to know you? No, we hung him on a cross and we killed him because this exact reality is played out in the most important event that ever happened in human history. And the question that comes out of this, if this is true, then where does it leave us? Where do we go from here? How do we escape this darkness? Is fellowship with God and with one another even possible in this world? I don't know about you, but I ask that question all the time. If you turn on the TV again, is fellowship possible in our world anymore? And is fellowship with God even possible? And the answer to that comes in the third point that I want us to look at this morning, and that is that the Bible not only talks about uh, the reality that light represents truth and righteousness, but it also represents a metaphor for life. And our culture, again, sees it exactly the same way. Light is the source of all life. You think about the idea of nature. You know, photosynthesis has to exist, right, in order for there to be any plants in our world. Light is necessary for life in that way. And darkness is death. Most of us have seen those movies where, you know, an asteroid comes from space and, like, whacks the Earth at some point, and this huge cloud covers the entire earth, and, and it's darkness, and then everything on earth dies, and we're all living in caves somewhere, you know, uh, trying not to eat each other, and that kind of stuff. So you, you get this kind of concept in our culture that we understand that darkness leads to death in that way. And it begs the question, where does this life come from? Does it originate, again, from external source out there, or does it come from within us? that we create life. And the Bible has an answer to this as well, that God is light. He is the source of all life. He is the one who created all things and breathed life into existence in our world. But it also begs another question. If this is true, then where does darkness come from? And the answer to that is the source of all darkness in this world is rooted in our sin and our rebellion against him. In our sin, we tried to escape God's light, like I talked about a minute ago, by attempting to make ourselves into our own source of truth and righteousness and life in this world instead of God. And in doing so, we not only broke fellowship with God, we also brought death into our world and shattered our ability to have true fellowship with one another. We separated ourselves from the very source of our life, and as a result, we are now dead in our trespasses and sins, we are told and completely without hope or ability to save ourselves. 
John 1 says this. Jesus is the light of the world. And in this light is the life of mankind. The light shines into the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. And Jesus, God, not only revealed his light and truth and righteousness, and Jesus, the author of light, actually came into our world and entered in in the greatest act of love and mercy that we have ever known in this world and willingly allowed himself to die so that we might have life. He was extinguished so that we could be relit in the gospel. The righteous one laid down his righteousness and gave it to us so the unrighteous could actually know what righteousness was all about. And he did so that his lifeblood might cleanse us from all of our sin and forgive us, that we might be brought back into fellowship with God and with one another, and that we might be given his righteousness so that we could have hope in this world. The promise of the gospel is when the light of Jesus pierces our darkness and shines upon us that we are actually given new life. And that is a beautiful thing. This is the message that John says that he and the other apostles had been given from God and heard directly from him and now are passing directly on to us. And he's not just talking about his audience, he's talking about us here sitting here today. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. This is the answer to the question of how we can have renewed fellowship with God it's the answer to the question how we can have renewed fellowship with one another, and it is the answer to the question of how our joy can be made complete in this world. But it's also a warning. Those who deny their sin and continue to walk in darkness by putting their faith in themselves and the source of their light will never be able to escape the darkness of this world. And therefore, he calls us to confession here. And the Bible says that repentance and faith is a very foundation of what it means to be a Christian and to have the life that we are offered in the light of God's truth. Now, confession is hard. It's hard to confess that we're sinners. It's hard to confess that we're broken and that we've not done things well. It's hard to confess the reality of the brokenness that exists in our own lives. But according to the Bible, confession is actually the pathway that leads to life. Um, you know, many, many years ago, I was actually in Nashville when this happened. I was traveling through. But if you guys remember, this would have been in the early 2000s, probably mid-2000s. Um, there was a tsunami that hit Japan. And if you saw the, the video of that, it's just horrific, especially on the northern shore of the island. It just absolutely destroyed everything. It wiped everything away in its path. And I was reading a story one time uh, about this group of fishermen that were on the northern shore of Japan, and they did something that seemed like it was absolutely insane. When the alarms went off for the tsunami, and they knew what that was because they were fishermen, instead of running inland, like almost everybody did, they ran to their boats, and they got in their boats, and they sailed directly toward the epicenter of the, of the earthquake. And as they did so, they were saved and everyone else died. Everyone else died. That is exactly what repentance and confession is like in the gospel. Everything in us makes us wanna run from God when we see our brokenness and our sin. 
But if we hear and we understand and we see the truth of the light of the gospel and the way that Jesus has told us, if we run to him instead of running away, we will find the life that we desperately long for. We will be renewed in him, fellowship with him and fellowship with one another. And we will actually be saved. The promise of the gospel is that all those who confess their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation will be forgiven of their sin, restored to right fellowship with God, and given eternal life in him. As we close our time this morning, I want you to take your bulletin, if you got it, and I want you to turn back to our, our uh, assurance of grace. Why do we do confession in our service? Because it is the very one of the very foundations of why we have fellowship together. As we come together to worship as a body, it actually, as we confess, allows us to have fellowship with God and with one another as we're honest about the reality of this world. And the hope that we cling to in the midst of that is the great promise of the gospel that is given to us in Jesus Christ. So to close our time this morning, I just want to read this again. And I think it'd be good for you to respond with the dark lettering as I read the light. Based on Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 5. Who is in a position to condemn? Only Christ. And Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. Believe the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. In the book of Proverbs, it says, in the light of the king's face, there is life. And I can tell you, my friends, that there is nothing more true in our world than that. Let's pray. Most Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you for your word. We praise you that it tells us things that we don't like to hear and see. That it awakens us and exposes us and then draws us out of our darkness to the true light and life in this world. And I pray, Father, that this great truth would bind itself to our hearts this morning. That it would draw us into deeper fellowship with you and then through that, Lord, to deeper fellowship with one another in the midst of this broken world where we struggle to know what relationship even means anymore, that you would show us, that you would embody it, that you would draw us together as we are about to partake in your fellowship meal, Lord, that you would knit us together as your people and that you would remind us of your love. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.